Amen, amen. Well, it is the cross that, that does its work, that makes us happy, that creates some things, creates in us new life. The cross of Christ creates new life together as the Lord binds brothers and sisters, believers in his son, Jesus Christ. And so we sing about the cross. We, we savor the cross. We show the power of the cross. None of us would be here. Many of us would not know each other apart from the power of Christ Jesus cross. Amen. Right? He has united us together. He is the reason that we are here this morning. We don't necessarily like waking up early on Sundays but because of the cross. Lord Jesus Christ has called us to himself and called us to one another. That's something of what we'll look at this morning in our text and what we've been studying over the last two weeks, this week and last week, as we work through a paragraph in the book of Acts, looking at what the first church did when they encountered the cross of Christ. When they heard about this man, Jesus, that for, for a while, for at least a, a few years that they'd known about, but, but figured that he's just some Jewish carpenter's son, not of much value or much esteem. For a while, they, they set him aside as a nobody. But when the apostle Peter preached about Christ and what his cross had done, their hearts were transformed. They were convicted and they asked, what shall we do? They learned what you must do is turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. And they saw the power of the cross unite them together. And so we don't just sing about this thing in a kind of ethereal way. We understand that the power of the cross does something. It puts this fellowship together. It puts this people on the map in a place called Temple Hills Baptist Church. And so we praise the Lord for what he's done for us in Jesus. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We look at verses 42 through 47 together. If you need a Bible, you can find one in the chair beside you or the chair in front of you. It's on page 911. If you're using one of those Bibles, if you do not have a Bible of your own that you can understand clearly, feel free to take that Bible home with you as our gift to you. We want everyone to have their own copy of God's word. Acts chapter two, verses 42 through 47. We read, and they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Amen. So last week, again, we begin what will be a four-part sermon series looking at each of the characteristics or marks of a biblical church as we find them in, in the, the first church that we see here in Acts chapter 2. In verse 42, we see those, those marks listed. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Last Sunday, we looked at what it means and what it looks like for a a church for a congregation to be devoted uh, to the teaching of God's word. It's the word that gives and sustains the life of the church. This morning, we'll look at another crucial element of the church's life. The early church devoted itself to the fellowship. 
And from that aspect of the church's life and the activities described in the verses that follow, we can make this observation. A true church shares life together. I think that's the main idea of a church devoting itself to fellowship. So the main idea of this sermon, a true church shares life together. True church shares life together. As we walk through this text, we'll see four things that the early church shared. Number one, they shared the same God. Number two, they shared time in corporate worship. Number three, they shared time in each other's homes. And number four, they shared their goods. Number one, they shared the same God. Number two, they shared time in corporate worship. Number three, they shared time in each other's homes. And fourthly, they shared their goods. Number one, they shared the same God. Sharing is at the heart of that word fellowship we see in verse 42. It's the Greek word koinonia. That may be the only Greek word that many Christians know. It means participation in the, the same thing or communing together. It's this communion and participation that we were made for. Primarily, you and me and every other person ever created were made to have communion, to have fellowship with God. It's something of the story of the Bible. God made us to have a close relationship, to have intimate fellowship with him. Not because he needed us or was deprived of fellowship. From all eternity, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit all enjoyed a deep and sweet fellowship with one another. Delighting in each other. Deeply loving one another. I mean, Jesus says in John chapter 17, verse 24, that the father loved me from before the foundation of the world. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever the earth and the world were formed from everlasting to everlasting. There was God and within the Godhead from everlasting to everlasting. There was love. It wasn't that God lacked love or, or needed fellowship that he created us. But out of the overflow of the abundant love and fellowship that existed between the three persons of the Trinity. God wanted others to know him intimately. That they too might enjoy the, the sweetness of having a relationship with God. And so he made us human beings in his image to, to know him intimately and to express or reflect that knowledge of God to all of creation. We were made to enjoy deep fellowship with God. It's the idea expressed in Genesis when we read that the Lord God walked in the garden of Eden with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. It's meant to express that God was present with his people. They had unmediated, unhindered access to God. But not only were we made to have fellowship with God, we were made to have fellowship with one another. When God created Adam, he, he surrounded him with all these wonderful things in creation and all these animals of all kinds. But we read in Genesis chapter 2 that there was not found for him a, a suitable helper. There was a relational void. 
Yes, Adam had God, but God had created people to have fellowship with other people as well. And so God said that it is not good that man should be alone. And so God made Eve a wife fit or suitable, complementing Adam. And they were together, two people made in God's image, and they had perfect fellowship with God and with one another. That's how Genesis chapter 2 ends. It's a perfect, a blissful scene. But but then comes the darkness of Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve rebelled against their creator. They turned against their creator, and all creation was affected. Their fellowship with God was fractured. God kicked them out of his presence, away from the Garden of Eden. He he drove them out of the garden. Sin separated them from God. And sin separated them from one another. Adam and Eve, once inseparable, once beautifully bound together in fellowship, had that sweet fellowship ruptured. Adam blamed his wife for his wrong for tempting him to sin and wanted her killed. And Eve despised Adam's weak sauce leadership. What a wimp! Wanted to take his place as the new head. Sin entered into the world and destroyed fellowship with God and with other image bearers. And not just for Adam and Eve, but for all after them. For us, born from them, born into sin, born under sin, born apart from God and apart from one another. So that the only fellowship we all naturally have is a fellowship in fallenness. The only communion that we naturally have is a communion in corruption. The only sharing that we naturally have is a sharing in shameful sin. But God had a plan. He would take the initiative and restore fellowship between himself and humans and between us and one another. He ultimately did it by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to ransom and to reconcile us. First Peter chapter three, verse 18 says that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous Christ for the unrighteous us. For what purpose? that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus died and rose again to to bridge the gap that existed between us and God, the gap that our sin had created and to restore our fellowship to God. And Jesus died and rose again to restore the fellowship we used to have with one another. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 20, talks about the the hostility, the disfellowship that once existed between Jew and and Gentile, between all people. But in Jesus, it's all been squashed. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16 says, Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both Jew and Gentile one and has broken down the the, the wall of hostility in his flesh, abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances 
that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus died and rose again, not only to to restore our fellowship to God, reconcile us to him, but also to reconcile us to one another. We see that in our text, don't we? I mean, think about how Acts chapter 2 notes these 3,000 people here in the first church. Uh, They'd come from all over. If you look at your Bibles in Acts chapter 2 verse 5, it says they initially came from under every nation under heaven. They, They were people from Medea and Mesopotamia, from Judea and Cappadocia, from Pontus and Asia, from Egypt and Libya, from Rome and Crete and Arabia. They were all different people with different languages and different skin tones in town to celebrate Pentecost. But what's noted starting in verse 41 is what they all shared in common. They all believed the same gospel. They were all baptized. They were all added to the church and they all devoted themselves to doctrine and to one another. They'd all been converted and shared the same experience of being saved, born again by the power of Christ's cross and decided to live life together in him. They devoted themselves to to fellowship. Firstly, the, the fellowship with God and his son, Jesus Christ, a fellowship only possible through repentance and faith. When they repented and believed in Jesus, an invisible spiritual reality took place. All their sins, the sins that separated them from God, were credited or imputed to Christ. And his sacrificial death was deemed satisfactory as payment for fully paying the penalty for sins. His resurrection from the grave was proof that that payment was accepted by God. And when they repented and believed all of Christ's righteousness, his perfect record was credited or imputed upon them. The righteousness that people need to stand before a good and a holy God. In other words, in Christ, what kept them from God was crushed. Sin. And what they needed to be near God was granted. Righteousness. Saints, that's what's granted to all of us. When we repent, when we turn from our sins, and when we trust in Christ. All that keeps us from God is dealt with and we are delivered from God's wrath and into God's family, into God's fellowship. Friends, that's the sweetest fellowship any of us can have. Better than sharing the same interests. Sweeter than sharing the same ethnicity. Deeper than sharing the the same blood even is the fellowship of sharing the same God. They shared the same God. And so do we who believe in Jesus. And from that sharing comes all other sharing. Consider what life looked like as Christians. The early church also shared time together in corporate worship. Point number two, they shared time in corporate worship. That's part of what their devotion to to fellowship look like. They they gathered for for corporate worship. Look at verse 44. 
we read that all who believed were together. But together how? Not just in thought, but in the same place. I drop down to, to verse 46. We read that day by day they were attending the temple together. What a corrective that is for, for some in our day. And pictures and descriptions of fellowship, true fellowship, genuine fellowship, are presented as being away from the church building, away from the gathered body. I have true fellowship, a deep fellowship with people in my small group or with a few of my friends from different churches that I've, I've known for years. Uh, we get together monthly for fellowship over coffee or lunch. Or, or, or real fellowship happens around the dinner table as we share meals together in each other's homes. I mean, Sundays are too stuffy, too rigid, too liturgical for me. Uh, the church building not conducive for, for genuine fellowship. Well, friends, we'll, we'll see shortly as we look at the end of verse 46 that there are aspects of fellowship that are smaller and and more intimate that, that take place in people's homes. But those don't negate or diminish the vital necessity of the church fellowshipping together in corporate worship. All right. A large part of what it means to be a church is to all gather together. Friends, the very word translated church in our Bibles is the word ecclesia, which literally means an assembly. A gathering in the New Testament it's a group of Christians who believe the same Jesus and have been baptized as proof of that belief and who regularly assemble in a particular place at a particular time. That's, that's why there's no such thing as an online church. It's a contradiction in terms. A church must assemble, must gather to be a church. That's also as we touched on last week. We believe the Bible teaches against a multi-site or multi-service model of church. Because in those models, well-meaning as they might be, the entire church never regularly gathers together. Only a subset of the church does. One group at 9 a.m. and another at 11 a.m. One subset at the North Campus and another at the South Campus. But what we see in Acts 2 is that all 3,000 believers gathered together regularly, day after day, as a church to worship God together, to sit under the preaching of God's word together, to edify and encourage one another, to, to pray together. They fellowship together at the temple. Now, some people scoff at that, that idea. It's no way, they, they say that all these people could suddenly start meeting together. It had to have been in, in smaller groups and in, in little house churches. I mean, there couldn't possibly have been a building big enough to hold them all. But that's an assumption, isn't it? I mean, if there was a building big enough to house a presumably larger group that all came to Jerusalem for Pentecost, it was seen there was a space to, to house this kind of smaller 3,000. Still others say, look, it, it's no way that all 3,000 of these people were, were one church, were one assembly. I mean, we all know that when a church gets too big, you've got to break it apart. 
There's no way that a church can truly care for one another, can, can have true fellowship, can account for one another, can really gather together in worship in an authentic way once they get a certain size. They, they had to have broken up in, into smaller groups, meeting in smaller services at, at smaller sites. But that's not what the text says, is it? The text says the whole group, the whole church met together in the temple and that smaller groups met in homes. It's not an either or, it's a both and. Saints, we don't live off assumptions. We live off the authority of God's word. And what does the word say? It says the entire church gathered together. I mean, flip over in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, verse 4. That verse tells us that as the word is preached, the people continue to believe to the point that the church increased. It grew. The number of just the men alone rose to to more or about 5,000. You had women and and maybe even some children. Right, The number is probably very large. And then turn over to Acts chapter 5, verse 12. The end of verse 12 says that they... All 5,000 plus of them, even more than the 3,000 here, that they, all of them, were all together in Solomon's portico, a certain area of the temple. And then turn to Acts chapter 6, verse 2. A dispute rose up in the church. And we read that the apostles summoned the full number of disciples, the full number of believers together. That, That number included All 5,000 plus of them. Friends, the church all gathered together in Jerusalem at one time as one body. That's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible says God's people have always done. Gathered together to worship God. I mean, the fourth command in the Ten Commandments. Instructed the people of Israel to remember the Sabbath day. To keep it holy. It wasn't simply a call to to make a mental note of the Sabbath or to put an alert every Saturday on the Google calendar to let them know Sabbath today. No, the people of Israel remember the Sabbath by all assembling on the Sabbath to worship God together. In the passage Colette read for us earlier in Nehemiah chapter eight, verse one, we read that all the people of Israel gathered as one man. To sit under God's word and to worship him. We read that Ezra brought the law before the assembly. Interestingly, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, translates that word assembly, ecclesia, the gathering. God's people gather together to worship him. It's what had always been done under the old covenant. And now under the new covenant. Under the headship of Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new covenant, God's people, the church, continue to gather together. Here in Jerusalem, the the first church did it every day, attending the temple daily to worship God. As persecution came and the gospel spread and new churches were planted in different places, the the practice seemed to change from gathering for corporate worship every day to, to every week. Once a week, on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, the day the Lord Jesus Christ rose up from the grave. And so later in Acts, in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, the the author of Acts, Luke, 
says the church at Troas on the first day of the week gathered together to break bread and to hear Paul preach. And the apostle Paul himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 verse 2 instructs the Corinthian church to take up a collection for the needy saints in Jerusalem. And he instructs them to do this on the first day of every week. Why then? Because that's the day the church all gathered together. And so while over time, the day and the frequency may have changed, the basic function of the church had not. The church regularly gathered, assembled together. Yes, the church is a people, not a place. But those people must meet together at a certain place, at a certain time to be a biblical church. Gathering of the body is is vitally important, is necessary. The the body of Christ gathers to worship God, but also to, to build up brothers and sisters in the body. That's what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. He says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. How do you do that? How do you consider stirring other brothers and sisters up? Verse 25, by not neglecting to meet or assemble together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as the day draws near. The habits, the custom, the practice for God's people throughout history, the nature of the church is to gather together, to worship God together, to edify one another together. The habit of some had been to neglect that habit, to refuse to gather. The writer of Hebrews commands us not to do that. I'm trying to put the pressure here, put the pressure that the Bible puts on us as believers. Believers are baptized and become members of churches. And as members of churches, they commit to gathering together for corporate worship with other members of the church. That's what they must do to be a church. That's what we must do to be a church. Friends, I'm I'm belaboring this point. Because in our day, it's so common for people to to try to unhitch Christianity from church membership. And to try to unhitch church membership from church attendance. But in the Bible, they are all connected There is no concept of a churchless Christian in the New Testament. No Christians all submit to churches as members. And members of churches gather together with other members of the church for worship. That's what we see in Acts 2 and in many other places in the New Testament. And friends, you and I cannot improve upon what the Bible teaches we can't come up with an alternate plan for spiritual growth than what the Bible presents. Maybe you have, but I have never seen a Christian spiritually thriving who does not regularly gather with God's people. And really, it's quite astonishing for people to think that they can spiritually prosper without this kind of gathering. I mean, picture an employee who rarely goes to work. Telework has has changed a little bit of this, but let's assume your job still requires you to go to the office. If you went to the office two out of five times a week, no one would say that you're a model employee. 
Well, let's say you're on a team. But you only show up to half of your team's games. Not because of sickness or injury, but, you know, stuff. You would not be considered a good teammate. Or what if a spouse only comes home every now and then? Maybe 60 or 70% of the time every year. The rest of the year, who knows? Or when he or she is home, they only infrequently share their spouse's bed. None of us will look at that marriage and say, oh, that's a healthy marriage. And yet, Christians sometimes think that we can come to church, come to the assembly of the believers a few times a year or once a month or even three out of four times a month and can consider ourselves healthy Christians. Transfer that mindset to your job or to your marriage. Miss one day of work every week. Miss one day of coming home every week for the rest of your life and see what your boss or your spouse is. See if you don't make a wreck of your job or your marriage. Why do you think you won't make a wreck of your faith with the same kind of inconsistency? That might not mean that you totally abandon Jesus. But you might be spiritually stunted in a serious way. I mean, many of us have experienced that. Being at church every week does not make all your problems go away. Amen. Can, we, can I get a testimony? <laughs> it is not a guarantee for a quick spiritual kind of booster shot. But being away from the body certainly does not help. Amen. Your sin festers in secret. Amen. Away from the accountability of, of others. Your desire for an understanding of God's word diminishes apart from sitting under the preaching and teaching of God's word. Your love for God's people grows cold. You're separated from brothers and sisters in the faith. Saints, we need to be together. That's how God has designed this thing. So saints, aim to come to church to worship together every single Sundays. Four out of four or five out of five Sundays every month. Yes, there will be times when you're sick and you can't make it. Please, please stay home in those times. Yes, there may be times when you're traveling for for work or on vacation. You can't be here then. That's fine. But even then, try to find a good church to attend wherever you are. Yes, there may be super rare occurrences when a global pandemic shuts everything down. Those will be extremely rare occurrences in God's providence. But most normally... You should plan and persistently commit and prepare and plod forward to be here with your brothers and sisters at church every single week, acting like a church, gathering together for worship. Friends, it's, it's sin not to do so. Not regularly gathering with God's people is serious. It is a sin. You break a direct command of scripture. Again, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25 commands us not to make a habit of not assembling together. It's spiritually harmful not to do so. You harm yourself. You stunt your own spiritual growth by not sitting under God's word, by not singing it and praying it and reading it and responding to it with God's people. 
You deprive yourself from the opportunity to be encouraged and stirred up spiritually that Hebrews 10, 24 says. It's self-serving not to do so. Friends, when you fail to gather with your brothers and sisters here, you deprive us of your gifts. You deprive us of your encouragement. You deprive us of your counsel. You deprive us of your presence. We need you here with us. Amen. There are no unnecessary members in the body of Christ. Amen. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 that every single member, even the one that feels useless, is indispensable. Amen. You have a purpose in this church, a glorious purpose, a purpose to strengthen us spiritually, Amen. a purpose that you cannot fulfill if you neglect to gather with us. That, that brings up a note that's important for all of us, frequent or infrequent attenders. It's not just that you come. It's also how you come. All right. Amen. That is, we aren't, to, we aren't to gather together merely as consumers to see what we can get on Sundays, but also as providers to see what we can give. So don't just show up to be fed. Show up to feed. Show up to encourage others to build them spiritually. Amen. I mean, the Apostle Paul says in, in Romans chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, he, he tells the Roman believers that I, I long to see you so that I can impart some spiritual gift to you. Right. And then he clarifies this, that is that we might be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Paul's like, I, I want to come see you because I need to be encouraged by you and you need to be encouraged by me. Amen. There's something you should show up to give each week. Those saints pray before you come every week that God would make you mindful of other brothers and sisters that he'll put in your path. And he'll make you mindful that they need to be edified, not just you. And he'd make you mindful that you might be the vehicle he uses to edify them. Read the sermon passage before the, the service. Meditate on it so that when you come on Sundays, you've already got some good thoughts, some good applications that that might be amplified by the sermon and that you're eager and able to share with others after the service. Consider sitting next to someone new next week. I mean, I'm like, no, nah, I ain't doing that. <laughs> so there are no assigned seats here, okay? Contrary to what might be the normal practice. Maybe survey the room next week or one Sunday. See who's there and consider plopping, next to, plopping down next to someone that you don't know very well. Or next to someone that you know is having a hard time going through some struggles. Sit next to them to encourage them. Uh, observe the, the songs that seem to especially move them. Uh, observe what words of the scripture or points in the sermon seem to, to resonate with them. Silently pray for them as you sit next to them that the Lord would meet them in a, in a powerful way. And you can do that even now for the person you're sitting next to. Pray that the Lord would meet them. Provide what they need. You can, you can see that even the person next to you might be God's vehicle to use you to, to minister to them. Your proximity to them might provoke opportunities for good conversations after service. Ask them about the sermon. Ask them about their week. Ask them about ways you can pray for them. Uh, now, maybe you're thinking, look, I, I'm not super confident or, or comfortable in sparking up these kind of conversations. I, I'm more reserved than to, to seek folks out. I, I really don't have much to give. I understand that God made us all differently. Praise God for that. It would be a boring church if we were all the same. Mm 
But even though God made you different, even though you feel like you don't have anything to give, still come here. Still come every Sunday. Do not minimize the immense ministry of presence. Don't minimize the immense ministry of presence. I mean, some of you are here struggling with, with chronic pain. And just to sit in these chairs hurts right now. You, you share that with me. And yet here you are every Sunday, enduring, being edified. And maybe even without you knowing it, edifying others as you model perseverance. Showing us a picture of what it looks like to prioritize Jesus' word and his people. Now, some of you have sit in these chairs for a number of years. And before these chairs, you've sat in the wooden pews that used to be here. You've seen changes not only physically, but spiritually in our church. I'm thinking Miss Blanche, who's been a member here for 42 years. Miss Blanche, think of how many thousands of gatherings like this you've sat in. She's been a mainstay over there on that left side of, of, of the room. For a number of years, it was Miss Blanche sitting there and right next to her, faithfully, week after week, was Miss Audrey sitting right there next to her. Miss Audrey has passed away. Many of Miss Blanche's friends have passed away. Some of Miss Blanche's friends have fallen away. And yet, Miss Blanche is still here every Sunday, preaching with her presence. The Lord is good. The Lord is faithful. The Lord sustains. The Lord has built his church. And neither the graves of death nor the gates of hell can prevail against God's people. Friends, let us hold fast our confession by wholeheartedly following the command to gather with God's people, propelling one another to worship God together. Let us share time in corporate worship as the early church did. But they also spent time together in each other's homes. Number three, they shared time in each other's homes. Again, the end of verse 46 shows us that there was fellowship not only all together in the temple, but also smaller table fellowship as people broke bread in their homes. As they ate together, they conversed together, they encouraged one another spiritually. I mean, verse 47 says that they were praising God in both settings at the temple and at the table. And this wasn't simply let's eat together, but it was let's edify one another. Let's think about the Lord together. Let's thank him for this food. Let's thank him for our salvation. Let's thank him for this fellowship. You see, you and I were made to, to praise God, to, to glorify him in all that we do, in every setting. And so these believers did that through their hospitality. And gladly so. Now, when you read passages like this, the church gathering together daily for corporate worship and having this kind of warm, intimate, seemingly open door policy at home where they share meals, they share life together. Do you think it's all kind of pie in the sky? A kind of impossible ideal? And good for them, but not realistic to replicate in 21st century America. I mean, in the D.C. area of all places. Perhaps you feel that way because you've never experienced this kind of fellowship. You feel fellowship deficient. Perhaps it's driven by what others aren't doing or haven't done for you. You don't get any invitations out to eat. 
You don't get any invites to people's homes. You feel distant and cut off. Friends, I know that can happen. Even in a small church, you can feel unknown and uncared for. I know that can be hard, and I'm, I'm sorry that that's some people's experience. But don't allow that to control the narrative or to stunt your fellowship. Consider moments in the life of this church where you have had sweet fellowship. Sure, they, they might not have been as many as you want, or with some of the people that you wanted to have them with. But I can almost guarantee that there have been more instances than you think. Thank God for the grace he's, he's given you in certain moments or in certain seasons where you've been able to join in smaller settings with other saints and be encouraged. And then go on the offense. What you've lacked, try to provide. That's just a good way to live the Christian life. Whatever you've lacked, whatever you feel like would have helped you grow as a Christian, don't just lament that. Learn from that. And look for ways that you might provide for someone else what you wish you had. So if you wish that someone, when you were a, a newer Christian, would have taken you under their wing and, and, and discipled you, well, you go do that for somebody else. Take a, a younger Christian under your wing and disciple them. Or if you wish that folks would invite you over for dinner or out for lunch, then you take the initiative and invite someone else over for dinner or out for lunch or to coffee or for a walk. Don't stew in self-pity. Right. Satan would love for you to do that. Amen. Instead, step out in selfless love and seek to care for others. You don't have to have any special gifting. You don't have to have a spectacular HGTV kind of place. You don't have to have superb cooking skills. Just a willingness and determination to deepen relationships with other brothers and sisters. And an understanding that often that requires meeting together outside of Sundays. I think, I think we all know that Sundays are great. Corporate worship is great, but it's not enough. It's not meant to be the end-all, be-all of the Christian life. Yes, we all gather together on Sundays, but we scatter from Monday through Saturday, but still with the purpose to encourage and build up one another. Amen. That's why we don't have a bunch of programs here. We try to put things on Sundays and a Bible study on Wednesdays, and the rest of the week is yours. Use that week to, to, to fit in other brothers and sisters into the schedule to mutually encourage one another. I'm thankful for how often I hear that happens. One of the sweetest gifts of being a pastor at this church is, is not the kind of compliments on the sermon, but the sweetest gifts is hearing people talk about how they're caring for one another, how they're meeting together. All right, this older sister meeting together with this younger sister to study the Bible together. This more reserved brother meeting with this more outgoing brother for meals and for conversations and to build friendships. That's what the body is supposed to do to meet together, to help one another. And it doesn't have to be in each other's homes. It can be in various settings. The point is not the physical place. The, the, the point is the purpose of prioritizing the body, prioritizing the spiritual growth of other brothers and sisters and opening your life to meet those needs. I mean, you see that here in Acts 2 with these believers. They center their lives around the church. 
They carved out intentional, untouchable time every day for worship at the temple. And then they made sure to have time to, to have each other in each other's homes. And friends, we are still called to center our lives around the local church. Around attending church together and spending time outside of this assembly together. If, if that sounds daunting or undoable, just consider the things people already center their lives around. It's not abnormal to see and hear people uprooting their lives for jobs. They move across the country. They buy homes closer to where they work to, to shorten the commute time. They spend hundreds of thousands of dollars in preparation for jobs in a certain field. There's a purposeful reordering of things around a top priority. This job. Or oh, it's quite common for parents and their kids to center their lives around sports or other activities. The calendars are carefully coordinated around kids' games and practices and travel and pickup times and awards banquets year round. But friends, I'm not saying to quit your jobs or to pull your kids out of sports or activities. Don't, don't hear me wrong here. I'm thankful for jobs. My kids are in sports and activities. I'm in the same boat as many of you. But what I'm wanting to pick at is perhaps this, this hidden, a quiet revolt inside some of us that thinks that centering your life around the church is absurd. Friends, most of us are centering our lives around something already without any kind of revolt. Why then such a backlash at the idea of centering your life around the local church? The Bible is meaning to to challenge our intuitions and to change our intuitions to cause us to cherish God's people, to cherish spending time with them because God cherishes them. Amen. And Ephesians chapter 5 verse 29 says Christ cherishes the church. I mean, look at what he's done for the church. He left the glories of heaven to come to earth. Enduring the filthiness and folliness of living in a fallen world. He endured the slaps and the spits on the way to the cross where he took on the sins of all those who would trust in him. He took on our sins and he shed his precious blood for us so that we might be saved. Christ died for the church. So says, look around. Look around here. What you see is a company of blood-bought believers. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, died for this brother. Jesus Christ died for this sister. He gave up his life for them. Would I not give up a few hours to meet with them? Would I not give up a few days next month to have them in my home? Would I not give up a few comforts or Conveniences to prioritize caring for and encouraging them. He died for the church and calls us to die to ourselves for the church. What's that look like for you? Well, some of us might consider moving from where we live now to live closer to the church or other church members so that you can more easily connect with and naturally have conversations and commit to having each other over more and more. Now, that's not a biblical command. You can live wherever you want. 
but it might be a practical way to help you follow the biblical command, to care for and encourage other saints. I mean, we live in D.C. where 10 miles could mean 50 minutes. So consider what it would look like for several members to live within a three-minute walk of one another. It doesn't guarantee more fellowship, but it makes us easier to kind of live this kind of life out. All right, that is, if we prioritize this kind of thing deeply, then as we do other things, jobs and sports, we would make some efforts right, to move some things around. Again, that's not a requirement or a command. Something maybe to prayerfully consider. Some of us others might need to drop an activity or two or 10. We might need to restructure our calendars. Friends, I struggle with this too. If we're too busy for the Lord and his people, we're too busy. Right? None of us are that high functioning. None of us are that multitasking. All of us need God's people to help us. And so what might need to to take a back seat for a little bit, to prioritize that. Unburden yourself of good, but not necessary things to free up time and space for what's truly valuable. Sharing life with other believers and building up one another in Jesus. Lastly and briefly, we see that these first believers in the church shared their goods together. Number four, they shared their goods together. Amen. Look at verses 44 and 45. We read that all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, some have wrongly taken these verses to to promote a kind of uh, concept of communism, where no one has any kind of personal property or goods. Everything is owned and controlled by the public for public use. Some religious groups have risen up over the years and require their members to sell all that they have for the common good, using these verses as as grounds for justification. But these verses don't demand that believers do that. They don't demand believers to sell all their goods. They rather describe that some did that, that some sold what they had to provide for those in need. It in no way establishes some some sort of rule or principle that requires you to sell your personal property. Some did, but others didn't. I mean, the very fact that verse 46 says that that they were breaking bread in their homes notes that the homes still belong to certain specific believers. And later in Acts chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira sell a piece of land, but they lie about the amount that they sold it for as they decide to give some of the proceeds to the church and to keep some for themselves. The Apostle Peter says, why'd you lie? You weren't required to sell the property. And even once you sold it, you weren't required to give any of the money to the church. No, these verses don't demand or establish a concept of communism, but they do reflect an attitude and practice of generosity that should be modeled by all believers. These believers didn't share their goods because they had to, but because they wanted to. The end of verse 46 says they had glad and generous hearts that produced in them generous actions. They reflected on what the Lord has done for them. As we reflect on what the Lord has done for us, he gave up everything for us. Considering that frees us up 
from the grip we have on this world's goods so that we can serve others, so that we can seek their good and help them in need. I'm thankful to, to be in a church where we see that routinely on display. You all move like a moth to the fire when you see other brothers and sisters in need. When there's a need, you, you rush in to provide. Whether that's providing meals when a member is recovering from a surgery or just had a child, or providing funds to help a, a member cover funeral expenses for another family member, or when job loss or some other event sends a member into a financial constraints. Praise God for the way we already generously provide for one another. Praise God for the way we generously give each week for the health and life of this church. I pray that continues, and I pray that we continue and even grow in our generosity. One brother this week, as he meditated on this text, suggested that, that that might mean for some of us that we maintain our current standard of living, even if your salary increases. That means if you get a bonus on your check or get a raise next week, it doesn't necessarily mean that you got to go get the Mercedes next week All right. All right. or the Tesla. All right. That Toyota is going to still run I right. or not. <laughs> All right. Now, you might keep your standard of living even if your income increases and consider giving away more to the church every week or every year. I know churches use that kind of language all the time to, to, to kind of pounce on people. But if you've been here for a number of years, you just know that's not this church. Amen. Right. So you give faithfully, you give generously and trust the Lord to use your gifts to, to, to do good work. And we open up the books. So that you can see our little budget. Christina going to show you later on. You can see what we're doing, right? Uh, we mean to be a church, though, that uses the resources that God, God has given us not to hold on to them, to be selfish, but to give generously to provide. Give to our general fund. Give to our benevolence fund to help those in need of help. Continue to share goods with God's people. But, but saints, we can only share, often we can only share if you share. So if you have a need, you need to let folks know that you have a need. None of us are mind readers. Right. We're happy to help you and to, to bear your burdens and to, to help in those instances, but you have to share those burdens. You have to share what you need help with so that we might help you. Amen. That's what we're called to do as a church, to share all things together, to share all of life together. Saints, the, the church is God's idea. And the fellowship we have with him through Christ is real and fixed and firm. And the fellowship we have with one another is real and fixed and firm. So devote to the fellowship that we have as believers. Amen. And watch as you do so. As you devote to gathering weekly for worship and gathering in each other's homes as you do so watch as your love for the Lord and your love for his people grows let's pray the Lord we'll do that together Lord we thank you for teaching of your word it teaches us as people of the word how we must live according to your word help us to be united not only in thought but in practice and in purpose help us to give for one another's good to sacrifice for one another to love one another, to open up our homes and our hearts for each other. Thank you for the way you're already working in our hearts and our congregation to do that, to model that. Lord, we pray that what you started, you would multiply. We would do more and more. For your glory, 
for the good of your people. We pray this in Jesus' name.